around us and see the, the world around us and how amazing that is. And if that's not proof enough that there is a God who purposely made everything around us, uh, then David's going to give you a better example today when he talks about his most marvelous creation of us. If you would stand with me, sing how great thou art. Oh Lord my God, when I am awesome Today is from Psalms 139, 
verses 13 through 16. It's page 555 in the Pew Bible if you want to follow along. For you have formed my inward parts, you have covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, and that my soul knows very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret, and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Your eyes saw my substance, being yet unformed, and in your book they are all written, the days fashioned for me, when as yet there were none of them. Good morning. It is good to see each of you. If you're a guest, again, we welcome you. It encourages us that you're here, and we want to be an encouragement to you. When we think about our church family, uh, several things have already been mentioned. We're mindful that we have so many of our high school age away at Evangelism University, and we appreciate their interest in that great spiritual weekend, and uh, we're thankful for the adults that are making that available to them. We're also mindful, as already prayed about, that Tim and Tracy Martin are driving right now up to Cleveland. Uh, I texted with him about 6.30 this morning. They were already close to Bowling Green, so they are uh, doing well on their travels there. He will have tests scheduled they're already scheduled all day tomorrow and then uh, a little bit more Tuesday and then the meeting with uh, the doctors and so uh, be praying about all of that tomorrow and about the plans that uh, will begin to be made on Tuesday and we also want to be mindful of the Eeks family uh, since the bulletin's been printed uh, we have learned and the arrangements have been made about David Eek's passing. We extend our sympathy to Dot Hudson, uh, his sister, and also to Carolyn Eek's, his sister-in-law, and all their families. The visitation will be today at Sellers Funeral Home from 2 to 8, and then on Monday from 11 to 1, and then the funeral will be at 1. And so we uh, want to pray for this good family and encourage them in every way that we can uh, during this time of, their pass of his passing. We also are mindful of things coming up this week of the Agape dinner that will be taking place Thursday evening in the fellowship room, 6.30. It's a wonderful time, if you don't know much about Agape, to uh, come and learn more. It's a wonderful time to support. There are many here that have supported Agape financially for decades. Uh, it's a great work. It's worthy of our support. I want to encourage you uh, to, to uh, be here. I want to encourage you to give as you can. And uh, so much in some of our families here have been given from Agape. And uh, we appreciate the good that they continue to do in the Nashville area. And we want to support them in that great work. Also, we think about next Sunday, we will have our regular collection and then the plate uh, the contribution will be collected a second time to replenish our First John fund. And um, as we know, we help individuals in this community every week. Uh, but several years ago, uh, it was presented an idea that why don't we have a fund where we have money ready and available that when one of our members, our brothers and sisters right here in this congregation need extra help, that those funds are ready and they're available. And so over the last several years, there have been uh, generous 
uh, gifts that have been able to be given as individuals in this congregation have the unexpected moments in their life. And um, that, that's a blessing. And that's what we want to do. Whether we're the ones giving it right now or receiving it later, uh, that's what we want to do. Uh, for you to see where this comes from, we think it's important for you to see the biblical teaching on this. This is exactly why we're doing it. If you would read with me in 1 John, we're looking at the third chapter, verse 16 and following. 1 John 3, 16 and following. By this we know love, because he laid down his life for us. We also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And by this we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. Let's make sure this next week that we prove uh, by our deeds that we love each other. It's one thing to just say it, but here what John is teaching is that's not enough. That true love does say it. But true love also communicates it in the deeds and the way that we share with each other when there is a need taking place. If you have your Bibles, and if you will, open back up to our text that has already been capably read in Psalm 139. In Psalm 139, we see a powerful chapter and the reason for which it's powerful is because it describes God. If you were going to try to help somebody understand God, how would you describe God? The first six verses, he describes God in such a way to make sure that we understand that he is all-knowing. Oh, you and I can know some things, and we may know some people that know a lot of things, but listen, God knows everything. Whatever questions you can imagine... God has the answers. But then in the following verses, in verse 7, down to verse 12, he shows the omnipresence of God. You may brag about the fact that, that you went here, 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 and here today. But listen, God can be everywhere at one time. That's why he's deity. That's why he's God. He's not just really good at being a superhuman being. He's not a human being. He is not limited with some knowledge, all knowledge. He's not limited with space. He's present everywhere. But then the next thing that the psalmist reveals about God is he reveals about God's power. And just like he has shown that he's all-knowing and all-present, now he's going to show that he is all-powerful. Now pause right there for a moment. If you were writing this psalm, how would you illustrate that God is all-powerful? Out of all the ways that it could be illustrated, and I suppose it could be almost a countless number of ways that you could illustrate the power of God, it is amazing that in this particular writing that is inspired by God, in other words, God wanted this to be recorded. This is truthful. This is accurate. Out of all the ways we could see God, he says, I want you to see me I want you to see my power. I want you to see it in the way that I make babies in the womb. He says, you will see my power 
when you understand the creation of a baby in the womb. Isn't that amazing? I want to read it again. And I'm sorry that I didn't copy the slide back over, but, but then we'll be right back to our slides. Here's the way, it, especially 13 and 14. I want, just listen to this. For you formed my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works and that my soul knows very well. In verse 13, the first part that he emphasizes there is the very fact that God is the maker. Well, what did God make? Well, he makes this and the word secret is even used in verse 15. He says what he makes that he's going to talk about here is he's going to talk about making human life. And, and he somewhat does it in secret because it's inside the womb. You know, anytime something is out of our sight, there comes a little level of mystery and sometimes a great level of mystery. You know, I, I think about Area 51. You know, it's only in, in like the last two to three years that the CIA has publicly acknowledged that Area 51 existed. Well, before they publicly acknowledged it, you know, there's been all kind of speculation of does it exist and what's there and etc. Why? Because whatever is there, those projects are in secret. You see what God is doing here? In 13, 14, 15, 16, God is bringing out the fact, he says, you want me to show you how powerful I am? There's some things I do in secret. In other words, you won't ever fully see. Now I know you're already thinking in modern time, we get to see a lot more than mankind's ever seen before. You're right. The, the imaging today, it is amazing how much we can see inside the womb, but still we don't understand it completely and we don't see it all completely. And so what he does here is he says, I want to talk about what I make. And he says, I make it in the womb. But then that very first phrase in 13, he says, for you form my inward parts. The idea of you formed is one Hebrew word that has to do with being the creator. In other words, he's going to talk about babies in the womb. And he says, I just want you to know, God's saying through the psalmist here, I'm the one that creates that. I'm the one that makes that. Notice he says, you formed my inward parts. Do you see what he's doing here? He's saying, I want to talk about what I do inside the womb. And now he says... Okay, I want you to imagine that human baby. And he says, I want you now to go not just in the womb. I want you to go inside that human baby. I'm the one that created the inward parts there. And the very root of that has to do with kidney. Sometimes it has to do with mind. By application, it has to do with essential organs. He's literally saying here, you're the one that inside my mother's womb made my insides down to the very complicated DNA you are designed you are designed by God God designed your organs he designed what they would do he designed your skeleton system or your muscular system he designed your nervous system God designed every aspect of you now let me just pause here and say if that isn't a marvel to you, it ought to be. Because when God is saying, I want to prove to you that I am all powerful, this is where he begins. To say, I want to show you what I can do inside a womb. Now, I want you to notice this next part. The next part, when he says in 14, I'll praise you, he literally says, 
for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. That word wonderfully made there, I know in English it's two, but in Hebrews it's that one word of Paula. That is the word that we get our theme this year of marvels. That's the word for distinguished, set apart, something great. The psalmist is saying, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. He is saying, I have come to realize that I am a marvelous work. I am a work that is set apart. How? Number one, as the human race. There are a lot of living creatures on this earth. But when God made mankind, we see from the beginning of making Adam in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, is he set man, the human race, apart from all of the other creation because he gave mankind the, his own image. He made us capable of deep and loving relationships. He made us with a soul that we can live on for eternity. And so in that sense, we are distinguished. We are separated. But there's another way in which we are distinguished. We are distinguished because each of us are unique. You are marvelously made. Just like snowflakes, there's not identical snowflakes. There's not an identical you. Oh, we like to some kind of time throw out and say, everybody has a twin. Well, even twins aren't the same. Do you realize out of everybody that has ever lived and will live, there will never be another you. God made you. The way you look, the way you think, the abilities that he has given you, the purpose that he has given you because he made you the opportunities that God will open up before you because he made you capable to fulfill those things. Do you realize that the psalmist is basking in the very creation of mankind? And in this sense, please get this, not in a narcissistic way. In this sense, he is loving himself. Remember the second greatest commandment? Love your neighbor as what? Love your neighbor as yourself? Psalmist, why do you love yourself? I love myself because of my theology. My understanding of God has caused me to love myself. I love God, but he has, teached, he has taught me to love myself because I'm unique. Look how carefully he's designed me. Look how he has made me. And after this point is made, but before this verse is finished, he burst out with another word that is very, very similar to our theme word for this year. And yet in English, he uses the word. Notice still in 14, he says, marvelous are your works. What are you talking about, Psalmist? He says, I, I'm talking about the creation of me the human being that you made me to be inside my mother's womb, inside me, it is marvelous. And you know what the word marvelous here? 
Like I say, it's very similar. So when I start to find this, you say, well, it sounds very similar. It should sound very similar. This word has to do with distinct, set apart, you're distinguished. But it deals with a greater emphasis on what's been set apart is great. In a sense, it's successful. In a sense, uh, it's miraculous. In other words, this that has been set apart is something that most can't do. Now, when you talk about marvelous works of God, that's a characteristic of deity. God can do marvelous works that no person can do. And so when he cries out, marvelous are your works, he is talking about himself. Look at the creation. Look how you made me. But he's putting the emphasis on the fact of whatever wonderful way I exist, it's because of you. You made me. I marvel in that. There's no such thing as a self-made person. And truth be told, there's no such thing when someone says, well, I want to make myself into Let me remind you of something. You've already been made. And if you want to have the life that you ought to have and the best life that you can have, take the marvelous way in which God has made you and walk in step with all of the ways that he gives you the opportunity to draw near to him and be close to him and to receive his love and then allow that love to be shared with others. What about as as his creation, I look to my creator and I bow in reverence because I realize how marvelous he is. I stand in awe. I serve with great sacrifice. I worship genuinely. I give generously. What if the description of my life because of my understanding of my God. You've heard me and others say things like this many times, but I beg you to believe this today. You will never understand you and your purpose for life until you know your creator. The better we know God, the better we will know ourself. Because of perhaps everybody in this room, because of our theology, just means a study of God, because our study and understanding of God, we look at the value of life in a much different way. Now, let me say this, not to criticize, but just to observe. When someone believes that they evolved, And perhaps this same person that believes they evolved, let's just say in this scenario that they don't believe that there's a God. And so they do not believe in a great designer and a great creator. And they believe that some way they were just a non-living that involved evolved into something living that involved in something more complicated. And some way all of this came about. 
what is your understanding of life going to be? Their understanding of the sanctity of life can never, from any, any source, can never arrive at the same place that our faith and understanding of the sanctity of life exist. So let us be careful. Anytime we start to view life and life issues through the lenses of the world. Because the world has left out one thing. God. The creator. The one that we should marvel at his creation. God teaches us that we ought to look at us, we ought to look at human life, and we ought to say, now that is a marvel of God. And so in 1973, when the Supreme Justices ruled that, that, that all states must make abortion uh, a right and, and in that available to women in America, it was something that as Christians... 43 years ago, this week, January 22nd, to be the anniversary date, it was something that we were appalled. And it doesn't matter how long America stands, and it doesn't matter how much is said about this and how common it becomes. Individuals that understand the marvels of God will always be appalled. Today, I ask you, what can we do? Most of us in this room are American citizens. Since 1973, and there's no way to get a good count. You remember when we talked a few months ago about Amendment 1? Remember, there, there's no regulations in a lot of states to abortion clinics. And so therefore, accurate reporting just doesn't exist. And so that's why you see different numbers of like right now, the, the ideas in America is that there's 750,000 abortions maybe a year. Some numbers might say a little bit more than a half a million each year. And then you say, well, how many since 1973? We say, well, it could be anywhere from, from 55 million. Some estimates go up over 60 million. What are you tempted to do with that? I'll tell you what I'm tempted to do with that. Now think about it. It hurts enough to hear of a school shooting where five kids are killed. It hurts enough to hear of a theater where, where a random shooting takes place and a dozen people die. It hurts enough to think that, that a mall or an office complex is, is, is just the grounds of, of brutal killing. And, and you want me to try to look three quarters of a million lives a year in the eyes and say it happens? 
in my neighborhood? I'd rather say, I just I like to pretend it doesn't happen. I like to pretend it's not real. I like to just, just not think about it. You know what? Even better yet, I like to just make it a political issue. You know, when, when, when I go to the voter's box, I, I kind of pay attention to that and I've done it. Lord, I'm on your side. I voted. I voted for life. And I like to just go home and say, I did it. I did everything I could do. I did everything I could do to honor the marvels of God. I want you to imagine that you go home this afternoon and you hear of news like you have never heard ever in your life and the world has never known. I want you to imagine that you turn on the television and everybody, no matter what station you go to, they're talking about the tragedies where all the children are dying in complete states. Entire populations of states, the elderly, the middle-aged, the children. What about if you turned on the television and it said, everybody last night in Louisiana died. Everybody, total population of Kentucky, Oregon, Oklahoma, Connecticut, Iowa, Utah, Mississippi, Arkansas, Kansas, Nevada, New Mexico, Nebraska, West Virginia, Idaho, Hawaii, New Hampshire, Maine, Rhode Island, Montana, Delaware, South and North Dakota, Alaska, Vermont and Wyoming. All that have, that do live there, they're dead. That would be the equivalent to how many babies have been killed in the womb just since 1973. The human race does not know of a tragedy like abortion in any wars, in any holocaust, in any genocide. There is nothing to compare it to. Nothing. It's not some kind of gunman. It's not some kind of scariness. It really does come down to what's your theology? What do you believe about God? Because sanctity of life, of those that understand when God says, let me show you me, and I want to show you the life that I create in the womb, is powerful. And so we bring ourselves before God as an American, a lot of blood on our hands. And is there any hope? Could God ever bless America again? 
Would God ever spare America again? Would God endure with America? I know the answer to those could be yes. And the reason I know that is when I turn back in my Bible, just a few more pages to Psalm 106. In Psalm 106, I'd like for you to notice when we read in verse 34 and 35, there are three they's. And by the way, Psalm 106 is almost like a miniature version of the Old Testament because it shows the movement of the people going from God into sin. And they get so deep into sin that they, they turn more to paganism than to God. And so God gives them up and, and God allows enemies and even raises up enemies to destroy them. And so they go and they go into this, this, this movement away from God and living in the hands of enemies. And before long, they wake up spiritually, maybe prophesy come in and wake them up spiritually and they cry out, God, God, save us. And God goes in and he rescues them. And so this is a beautiful short passage to show the cycle that, that Israel and even the human race continues to have as we struggle and as we, we serve God. Notice in verse 34, they did not destroy the peoples concerning whom the Lord had commanded them, but they mingled with Gentiles and they learned their works and they served their idols, which became a snare to them. Now, what's he talking about here? When Israel was going into Canaan to possess the land, remember the, the, one of the first things that God told them is when you get there, you, you either kill them all or drive them all out. In other words, don't leave them there. Well, he's bringing up the fact that when they went in to possess the land, they didn't do it. God told them to do it and they didn't do it. Why? God wanted a thick boundary, if you will, between them and paganism. And they ignored the boundary. Anytime we ignore God's teachings, we're ignoring boundaries. And anytime that boundaries that God has put in place crosses, there always ends up being chaos and destruction. In the very beginning, God separated what? The dry land and the waters. He put boundaries in place. Anytime the water, a hurricane, anytime the water comes over, it creates chaos. God puts separations into place. Here he says, listen, I want you to go into Canaan. I want you to put a separation. I do not want paganism coming in. Well, they didn't separate. Instead, in verse 35, what did they do? They began to mingle with them. And then what did they do when they began to mingle with them? Hey, I'd like to learn some about you. And the more they learned, what did they do? They fell in love with their idols. Well, what did this lead to? Well, notice again on the next slide, but it's the same passage. Look in 35, I'm sorry, in 36. The end was they served their idols, which became a snare to them. It became a trap to them. What does this mean, a trap? Well, they were caught up in something. Now you could have went to them at that time and said, hey, do you like serving these idols? And they would have said, well, sure. And you said, do you feel trapped? And they probably at the beginning would have said, I do not feel trapped. But you know what? They were trapped. In other words, they were trapped into this life that was leading them further and further away from God. What's the big deal about that? When you start leaving God, you can do a lot of things that aren't good and you can actually become trapped in them and you'll actually become an advocate for them and you'll actually start to justify and say they're not wrong. And even if somebody wants to help you escape, a lot of the time you have no desire to escape where you're trapped. And that's what's happening here. Well, let's ask the question, what were they ensnared in? 
Well, when we go back to verse 40 and 41 of this same passage, notice, therefore, the wrath of the Lord was kindled against the people so that he abhorred his own inheritance. He gave them into the hand of the Gentiles and those who hated them ruled over them. So what happened? They were trapped in the wrath of God. Romans, the first chapter in verse 18 tells us that the wrath of God is stirred against all unrighteousness and ungodliness and those that, that, that suppress the truth. Uh, and, and God is against sin. They had moved into a life of sin. Now, what they were experiencing was the wrath of God. So what did they experience further in this snare? Go back up, if you will, to verse 37 and notice what else they experienced. They even sacrificed their sons and their daughters to demons. It's unthinkable, isn't it? You look at some of the beautiful children in this room and to think, here were people that at one time they were followers of the Almighty God. And if you asked them right then at that point in time, do you still believe in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? They would have said, yes, we believe in him. But they also, they allowed their mind and their heart to start learning and be devoted to the pagans in Canaan, probably Moalek. That's one of the specific ones that Deuteronomy and Leviticus warned them not to follow. Why? Well, because you will begin to make sacrifice. Now, wait a minute. Define sacrifice. Sacrifice is when you give us something valuable for something that you think is worth the sacrifice. Okay, so how devoted were they to these demons, these idols? They were so devoted to these idols that number one, God said, I don't even want them around you. And they didn't destroy them. They were supposed to drive them out. And number two, now you're mingling with them. Now, number three, you're learning about them. Number four, now you are doing what? Now you're worshiping them. Okay, I'm ready to make a sacrifice. More like, what do you want? And the people taught them, well, what he wants is he wants you to, to sacrifice your children. Okay, now wait a minute. I, I love my child a lot. Well, how much do you love him? How much do you love your, your God here? Well, okay, I'll, I'll give up my child because of. Do you realize today there are a lot of reasons people give up children in the womb? It's always an idea of sacrifice. That giving up the child brings a greater reward than keeping the child. And I want you to hear real loud and clear. That's not healthy logic, but that's why agape is so important. That's why organizations like agape are so important. That's why having Christian co-workers are so important. Do you believe in the sanctity of life enough to be a voice at the workplace when someone has questions and they feel like giving up? Are you one that's willing to step in and say, let's talk about this. Let's reason through this. What kind of support could we offer? What kind of help could we give? Do you realize how many individuals there are alive today because when their mother was down in the dumps and she was considering either going to an abortion clinic or not, someone intervened and said, let me show you a way. And now that child is alive, and now that child has been adopted, or now that child is being raised by that mother. I want to encourage you 
agape, Christians, voices for the sanctity of life is a way that we speak about one of the marvelous works of God. I didn't define it that way and you didn't define it that way. God calls life in the womb a marvelous work of his. He called it that. And we ought to join the psalmist and praise him in that. I'd like you to notice in verse 37, though, he didn't just say children. He said their sons and their daughters. That points out that both genders, but it also points out their family. In other words, when it, if it would have just said they offer children, you and I could debate, where do you think they got the children? Well, we know where they got their children. It was their own sons and daughters. You see, this was destroying the family. And that's exactly what abortion continues to do. Abortion is always the taking the life of a son or a daughter. Notice what he says also as we go into 38 about innocent blood. And she had innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughter. This is kind of like legal talk here. Okay, so if blood was shed, what, what kind of blood was shed? Innocent. Whoa, whoa, now wait a minute. You know if you shed innocent blood, that makes you guilty. That's why he chose this language. The children that were being offered to Molech didn't do anything wrong. That's what he's pointing out. Even as they were being offered, they were innocent. The ones that did wrong were the ones that were offering them. And so then we say... What could be done? As we close, I want to show you two or three things. I can only do this quickly. We'll skip a few slides. If you will, look to Psalm 82, 3 and 4. I'd like for you to think about Thursday night. I'd like for you to think about being a voice in whatever way God gives you a voice. And I'd like for you to think about how the psalmist says this in Psalm 82, 3 and 4. Defend the poor and the fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and needy. Deliver the poor and needy. Free them from the hand of the wicked. What can we do? Are we praying about what we can do? Are we praying for God to open our eyes? Are we praying in the sense of realizing we're part of this culture? And we can argue, I didn't help create it, but the bottom line is, are we willing to bring, bring bloodstained hands to the Lord and say, have patience with us? But while you're having patience with us, what can we do, God? What can we do to make a difference in the lives of the ones that do not have a voice right now? How can we as a church family defend the lives of the defenseless? But as we bring our blood-stained hands, I want to remind every one of us here this morning, there would be several in this room that have, have, have helped pay for an abortion. There will be several in this room that have talked someone into having an abortion. There will be several in this room that have had an abortion. There will be several in this room that have spoken favorably of abortion. And so now the question is, is there any hope? 
beyond the regret and beyond the reality. Is there any hope? I want you to notice how this passage shows what these people that offered their children to Molech. I want to show you in 39. Still Psalm 106. They were defiled by their own works. And in 40, the wrath of the Lord was kindled against his people. But I want you to notice how this Psalms end because it tells the story. Verse 47. Save us, O Lord, our God. You've nailed it, God. You described us. When we evaluate who we are and what we do, sometimes we shock ourselves. We disappoint ourselves. We know we disappoint you. God, is there any hope in the Christ? Yes, there's hope. Where? Save us, O Lord, our God, and gather us from among the Gentiles. In other words, we've mingled enough. We've thought enough like they thought. We don't want to be that way anymore. To give thanks to your holy name, to triumph in your praise. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel from everlasting to everlasting. And let all the people say, amen. Praise the Lord. Listen, whatever you're wrestling with right now, if you can't be forgiven of it, there's nobody here that can make it to heaven. It's only by God's grace that any of us will ever be saved. And so is there hope? There's so much hope this earth can't hold it all. Does God still love you? There is no doubt how much God loves you. You just can't imagine. Will God forgive? Absolutely. That's who he is. A just and forgiving God. But for all of us, all of that comes back to our theology. Do you believe in a God who gave life, but do you also believe in a God who forgives? If so, will you this week and throughout your life, will you live so you reflect that. And as you do that, just remember, you're magnifying the marvels of God. This morning, if there's any way that we can help you take steps toward our loving God, we'd love to help you. This morning, if you need prayers of forgiveness this morning if you're ready to be immersed into Christ. I hope that all of us will leave here and be fervent in prayer about what we can do individually, collectively. To have a voice for those that desperately need a voice. But I beg you, do not leave here and put your head in the sand the marvelous work of God. If we can help you in any way, it comes we stand as we sing.